come to adore you, to worship you, and thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this world. And we do praise you and praise Jesus and praise the work of the Spirit on our hearts and our minds to call us to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that today you would be honored to bring us to your truth in such a way that we would obey it, we would carry it out, we would live like these two wonderful saints, Anna and Simeon, that we would live our lives focused on the Savior, Jesus Christ, the comfort, the consolation of all peoples. Lord, may we worship him eternally. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Steve, for that little addition there. That was a wonderful part to uh, uh, our worship. Thank you so much. That was a great time of worship. Open your Bibles to Luke 2. really love these Sundays, even though not a lot of people come. I do love that a lot of folks are out and we get to come and just sort of snuggle in and worship Jesus together. I think it's been, I don't know, six years or so since there's been a Christmas Sunday. I was told this morning that it's another 10 years after today before we have another Sunday Christmas. Uh, I know that we have a lot of folks here, some of you visiting, some of our little ones are with us, so uh, this won't be a long extended worship service, but I do want to take time to worship Jesus. And really, uh, I really like that about having Christmas on Sunday is that we get to focus on Jesus first, not presents, not Santa, not all this other stuff. We get to start the day by focusing on Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, that's what we intend to do today as we study the word. Luke 2, 21 to 39 is our text. And just to give you a little background information before we read it, this is possibly Jesus, Mary, and Joseph's second visit to the temple. The first one perhaps was with his circumcision. We're not sure. It doesn't say that he was circumcised at the temple. The way it would happen is this. According to Mosaic law, circumcision was to happen on the eighth day after birth, and then 32 days after, or 33 by Hebrew numbering, they would go to the temple for a ceremonial purification. So you have this very important, symbolic 40-day span of time, beginning with birth, then circumcision, then purification. This passage is that last stage, the purification, day 40. It's when they're at the temple. And what little we know about Mary and Joseph, it's pretty obvious. Here they are continuing in their faithful ways. You learn about Joseph's faithfulness early in Matthew, his integrity. You learn about Mary's faithfulness and integrity in the first chapter of Luke. They were flawed, yes. They needed a Savior, yes. But there were also righteous people dedicated to faithful, habitual, sacrificial obedience to the Lord. They return here for perfect purification as we see in this passage. We get a little snippet after this that we're going to look at next week, which indicates to us that they took Jesus to Jerusalem every year for Passover, again, indicating these were faithful, obedient, godly people. Now keep this in mind as we see their activity, sort of a, a side note here. God uses people in a direct way if they are obedient. Mary and Joseph were not perfect, but they, they did their best, and it sort of puts them in the positive side of providence. Right? Everything is providential. Everything is under God's sovereign plan. Everything is part of what He's doing in this universe. 
but you don't want to be on the side of it that God is using to demonstrate godlessness or punishing evil or showing what he does in terms of discipline. The side of providence that you want to be on is the side that God uses to bring about his glory in a positive way. And that's what's happening here. They're doing what's right. They're obeying the word of God. They're following the truth. And God just places them right in this story because they're simply obeying what the Bible says. That's what's happening. Well, let me read here verse 21. I think that's the best place to start. And then I'll end. It's often blended in the next section, but I'll end in verse 40. I think that's a good end to the section. Follow along. I'll read this aloud. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the, Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A word that you may hear once in a while in Christianity, in Christian circles, is the word profess. We don't use that word a lot in other contexts, the word profess. Maybe we can think of some other words that might help us understand this word profess. Profess is similar to confess, but confess really is more about acknowledgement, right? It's more about saying we acknowledge and we admit something, right? If you, if you confess something, you're simply acknowledging something is true. We think about confessing sin. What are you doing when you're confessing sin? Well, you're saying, Lord... What you say about my sin, what you say about what this is and what I've done is true. It is sin. 
And it is grievous. And I confess it. I acknowledge this about what I've done. I confess my sin. To profess is to take it one step further. To profess is not simply to admit some sort of data or some sort of truth. It is to then build your life around that reality, to build your life around that truth, to exist, in essence, around that, surrounding that truth. You think about a professor in colleges and academia. What you find is they have different uh, stratum of people who teach, right? You have the teacher's assistant, then you have maybe someone who might be called the assistant professor, but then you have the professor, and he might even have a chair that he's occupying that's endowed and a professor of such and such. And what that means is this guy is an expert. His whole life is, is, is built upon knowing and living out and being passionate about this particular subject. That's what a professor, a full professor is. Even think about the word profession, right? You, your job, your profession, that's what you're about every day. It's something that you're supposed to really know. You're supposed to be an expert in. You're supposed to grow in your knowledge, and, and your life really is, is, is crafted and surrounded with all things in terms of your profession. So if you profess something, it means you build your life around this truth. That's why sometimes when we say someone has professed Christ, sometimes people will say, Ad, he's professed Jesus as his Savior and Lord. He has acknowledged that not, he's not just a Savior or a Lord or a Christ, but he is his Savior and he is his Lord. He professes Christ. Well, I think this is what Luke is after in his gospel. He wanted his readers not simply to know data and information about Christ. He wanted the readers, his audience, to profess Christ, to, to build their lives around Christ, to, to make Christ their all, to, to make Christ their very profession of life and, and build everything that they think and, and, and interpret everything in life through the lens of their following Jesus Christ. This text is going to show us that a couple of people who profess Christ was, were based upon the fact that not only did individuals and angels profess Christ, but even the Holy Spirit professed that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And then we see another person. We see Simeon, then we see another person, Anna, and she professes Christ, but she does it based upon the fact that the Word of God professes that Jesus is the Christ. When you think about what's happening in the book of Luke, and if you read from the early chapters, what you find out is that what, that's what this is all about, people professing Christ. You see it first with Zechariah, then Mary, then Elizabeth. You see it with the angels, Mary and Joseph, shepherds, people professing not simply to data, but taking to their hearts, taking to the, the truth to their very lives, the truth of Jesus as the Christ. So we'll look at each one of these people, Simeon, then Anna. It is more of an overview. There are a lot of things we could sort of drill down into and study. If we were going through the book of Luke, we certainly would take time to do that. But this is more of an overview of this sort of long section as we look at people professing Christ. And we'll look at how ultimately it is a profession of the Spirit and God Himself through His Word. And, of course, the application is would you yourself profess Christ. So let's look at each one of these. Number one, the Spirit professed Jesus as the Christ. The Spirit professed Jesus as the Christ. Now, how did the Holy Spirit profess Christ? Well, in this text, He spoke 
uniquely to Simeon. He gave Simeon a unique, special revelation that Simeon would not die until he saw the Messiah. So let's talk about Simeon and what the Holy Spirit did to him, what happened here in this passage. Mary and Joseph dutifully headed to the temple on the 40th day. It was a day of purification. When they go up there, they providentially met this man named Simeon. Now, uh, we don't know if Simeon was some sort of Levite or some sort of priest up there. Uh, it seems like he, he dutifully gave a blessing, so perhaps he was somebody, but we don't know that he was. Maybe they just bumped into him and he, he pronounced this blessing. But if you think about the fact that they just bumped into him, you do have to say this is all under God's special care and providence. God had given through the Spirit this, this revelation to Simeon, and you think about the huge Temple Mount. Some of you have been up there. That's a huge uh, acreage. It's probably about 37, 39 acres, and uh, some of you have been up there. There's all kinds of mosques up there now. It's, it's Palestinian Muslim, uh, but that's, that, would, that would be covered with the temple. There would be all the things that were up there. We've talked about this in the, our study of the book of Matthew. This huge palisade, really, 40 acres, 39 acres of, of things relating right in the middle of it to, at the temple. They would have come up on that and, and just happened to bump into this one individual Simeon. It was all part of God's plan, of course. Again, we don't know a lot about Simeon. We don't know if he was a priest or some sort of teacher, a rabbi, a Levite, something. But I like to think he was because he seemed to, to pronounce this blessing as though it was his duty to do so. What do we know else about this man? His name, Simeon, by the way, interestingly enough, means God has heard. I think this plays beautifully into this very story. We know he lived in that area. It says that he was from Jerusalem. But most importantly, we know this, verse 25, he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, we'd like to think that all the people, all the Jews in that day and age were doing the same, following the law, waiting, putting their hope in, the consolation, the hope, the Messiah, waiting for God to visit them. And as you know from our study of the book of Matthew, you know that this is actually something that puts Simeon in a minority. Most people didn't think about the Messiah in this way. You had all kinds of different groups of people who, who led the people astray, right? One group, you remember the Essenes? The Essenes are the people that, that lived sort of an, a monk lifestyle, an ascetic lifestyle. They lived apart, and they, they thought the way that you find God is by rigorous, legalistic discipline away from the world. They would live in caves, often around the Dead Sea. They lived apart from the people. They thought that's the way that you're supposed to serve God. They didn't think much about hoping in the Messiah, reading and studying about the Messiah. Yeah, the Sadducees, we've talked about them also. These are sort of the, the theological liberals. These people had, had grown what they thought was a realistic view of the world. They didn't believe in some sort of Messiah. They didn't believe in eternity. They didn't believe in some sort of heaven or hell or anything like that. They, they sort of handpicked what they thought was logical and true, and they disbelieved everything else out of the Old Testament, just a few parts of 
the Bible they believe. They're sort of like theological liberals. They lost all hope in anything eternal, anything spiritual. They just sort of lived their lives. And we know that they, they had deals with the Romans. They were very wealthy because they had these deals because uh, their life was now and here and now. And it was about finding their best life in this life now. They lived very wealthy lives. You had other people like the Zealots who thought they should overturn the Roman rule with violence. And then you had the Pharisees who were sort of the legalist of the day. They would go around and they, of course they had added thousands of laws and rules to the Bible and judged people based upon their adherence to their rules that they had come up with. On top of all this, you had Roman rule. That part of the world was peaceful, but not at no cost. There was great price. Many people died. There was typical oppression. There may not have been wide-scale wars at that time during the Pax Romana, but there was oppression, and we can see it even in the death of Christ. People were executed. People were killed. And all kinds of false leaders, things happening up in Rome. And this is the world that they lived in. And all these different groups of people in Israel believing all these different things, and very few people were like Simeon. Simeon was an oddity, sadly enough, that he would wait for the consolation of Israel. There were a few people, a remnant, you could say, who clung to the Word of God, and Simeon was one of them. Now, this is what is so striking about this man. He read the Word and simply believed it. He read the Bible and just simply believed it. He didn't get caught up in some sort of bizarre, obscure groups of teaching and sects and uh, the, the religious elite. No, he simply read the Bible and believed it. Verse 25, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was righteous and devout. Looking from this from our perspective, we understand what Luke, Luke means. He, he believed in the promise of the one who would come and provide peace. He believed in the promises, and it was counted to him. We read this yesterday. It was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified like Abraham. He was justified by faith, faith in God, faith in the coming Messiah. He believed God's promises. So he was righteous by divine declaration. He was justified not by his own goodness, but by divine declaration. Devout means he was very careful. In other words, he was careful to, to read the Bible and do what was required of him. And this is a perfect description, really, of any true believer, not just then, but even now, right? Someone who looks to Jesus, someone who simply wants to know and obey the Word of God. There's belief, there's comprehension, their desire to build your life around the truth of Scripture. Well, if you were devout to Scripture as an Old Testament saint, you would be waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation, we use it sort of as a this is what we give the losers, right? We give them a consolation prize. The word consolation here means the peace. Someone who, who would come and console the people. The word is paraclesin, to the help of Israel, the hope of Israel. Now, that's what all genuine Old Testament saints did. They, they read some of the verses that we read last night in Christmas Eve service. We we read these verses about the promised one who would come and he would be of the lineage of David and they, they waited in hope. They, they looked for the Emmanuel, God with us, to come. They would come and comfort his people. It says Isaiah, 4, he, Isaiah 40, he would comfort his people, verse 1. He would console them, 
Verse 11 of Isaiah 40, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Simeon read verses like this, and he looked for the hope of Israel. He looked for the Messiah. He looked for the Christ. Simeon clung to these verses. He built his life around these things. Unlike the Pharisees, he didn't add a bunch of rules and legalistic laws. He simply read the Bible and did what it told him to do and be the person. And it found its apex, the the peak of everything that he did was to hope in the consolation, in the Messiah who would come and comfort Israel. He didn't just cherry pick some do's and don'ts. He didn't come up with his own system. He simply developed his whole view of life, of history, of past, of present, of future, all of it, it was dedicated to what he found on the pages of Scripture, the truth that was given to him to hope in the Messiah. What a great example for us. Well, it says three things of him that particular day. Verse 25 says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would see the Messiah before his death. In verse 27, it said that Simeon came to the temple that day in the Spirit. So let's talk about these three things regarding the Spirit and Simeon. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of overlap, similarity, continuity with what we think about a saint in the Old Testament and a saint in the New Testament. In terms of spiritual reality, there really is no difference. They're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Though they could not name the name of Jesus Christ, they did the very thing that Simeon did here. They, they looked forward. They looked at the promises that are recorded, uh, to promises that go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and Noah repeated there, and Moses and David and Solomon They looked to those verses. They looked to all the the prophets who spoke of this consolation, this hope of Israel. And they built their lives around this. This is how they're saved. They had faith in the coming one. They believed the truth of Jesus Christ and had faith in this. I know there's a level of discontinuity between old and new. One, of course, being their perspective, not knowing the name of Jesus, not knowing the story of death and resurrection. They also were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, something we see unique to New Testament, New Covenant believers beginning at Pentecost. But that doesn't mean they weren't affected or impacted or touched by the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say that was necessary for their own regeneration, for their own salvation. They needed the Holy Spirit to come and touch them. And I believe that's what verse 25 is telling us. This man's spiritual eyes had been opened by the Holy Spirit. This man's soul had been awakened to the truth of Christ. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had touched his heart, had regenerated him. Like what we read about in Titus chapter 3. They were washed, were saved, not by our works done in righteousness, but by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This man's soul had been changed. He had been born again. And though he did not have what we might think of as new covenant spiritual uh, life like we think of it even today, it was exactly like us in terms of his spiritual eyes being opened 
to the truth that Scripture announced. The Holy Spirit had opened his heart, opened his eyes, and saved him. I think that's what verse 25 conveys. Verse 26 conveys another part of uh, his relationship to the Holy Spirit. And that is that he was granted a unique divine revelation. In other words, much like Mary and Zechariah and Joseph and the shepherds, God was speaking again. And God was using angels and God was using visions and God was waking people up in dreams and revealing himself and revealing his truth to them. Simeon was part of that group. God had revealed through His Spirit details, specific, unique revelation. And we have no details about how it happened. We should not presume that it happened in one fashion or another, that it was by an angel or whatever. There's nothing detailed for us. We shouldn't assume that uh, all this is normalized. And I would say this too, we shouldn't normalize this even for the own Christian life, our own Christian lives today as though all believers should expect some sort of special, specific revelation. This is a very unique time in history. We see this with the angels. We see this with these people. God is speaking. He's revealing Himself to them. This is a unique time in the history of redemption. And in this time, God chose certain people to whom He would reveal His truth by the Spirit. And this is what's happened to Simeon. The Holy Spirit came to him in some way or another. We don't know how and revealed to him very specific, unique truth. Third thing it says about the Spirit, it says he came to the temple that day, quote, in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean, in the Spirit? In the Bible, this phrase has been used a different, in different ways for different things. One way it's been used is to just simply talk about uh, your non-physical existence, Think about John was taken in spirit to heaven. John says, I was taken in spirit. His spirit was transported to see heaven. A few times Peter talked about what God does for us in our spirits, that non-physical part of us, that eternal part of us, our spirit, not our body. Paul mentioned he'd gone on a spiritual journey, not a physical thing. But I don't think that's what is happening here. I think Simeon went into the temple physically not just in spirit. I think he was there physically, and I think this passage bears it out. He spoke with people. He talked with people. He blessed them. They saw him. He was physically there. It wasn't just some sort of spiritual dream or something. This did not happen in that way. So I think we can eliminate that idea of, of that quote, that idea in the spirit. There are a couple of other ways that that phrase is used in the spirit. One is to talk about when uh, early on in the lives of the apostles, uh, the Spirit would move them to do things or go some places. And also, the Spirit would inspire them to do what is right, to do the Word of God, to obey what the Scripture says. We think about the, the passage in Galatians chapter 5 that talks about walking not according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. What do you do when you walk according to the Spirit? You bear the fruit of the Spirit. In essence, you obey these things that God has given to us. Well, I think that's probably those last two things, maybe a combination of both, one or the other, or maybe both of them together, that Simeon is there. He's walking in the Spirit. 
He's operating in the Spirit. He's doing what is right. The Spirit has revealed to him something unique, something special. And perhaps even that morning he knew that he would find the Messiah. Now the reason I emphasize these ideas is that he was given this direct revelation. He was walking in the Spirit. And God had given this unique spiritual, spiritual revelation, this unmixed revelation that was undoubtedly God. Again, I want to be careful. There's nothing in Scripture that says that we're supposed to live that way as Christians. The Scripture itself is sufficient for life and godliness. It's sufficient to equip us for every good work. But this was a special time, and God had revealed to this man, God was speaking again, and God had revealed to this man something very specific, a spiritual, unique revelation so that the identity of Jesus would be made known. So that's where I get this idea that the Spirit Himself, through Simeon, through this righteous, devout man, through this man who, who had been born again by the Spirit, through this man, the Spirit identifies Jesus, professes that Jesus is the Christ, the true Messiah, the Savior. So that's the first thing. Two, we're going to look at Anna. And what we see in Anna is that the Bible profess Jesus is the Christ. When I say the Bible, of course, we think of God's Word, so you could even say God Himself professed that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then, she, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have this very old lady, 84. That's old today, but you think about back in that day. This have, would have been something that's truly remarkable, an 84-year-old woman. And he gives us a little backstory here. He, she was a very young lady, just seven years into her marriage. Her husband died. She remained a widow. So we're guessing probably 60 or 70 years she was a widow. The only other personal information we have is that she's from the tribe of Asher. But uh, you have to dig to sort of try to figure out something for that. I don't think Luke meant anything other than just to give us some details and inform us of who she was. What is of interest are a couple of things. First, Luke calls her a prophetess. I don't know what you're all thinking. You're thinking about a movie you saw one day, and there was an oracle, some woman who sits in strange clothes in a bizarrely decorated tent. People walk in there and they get their future from this prophetess or some oracle or some fortune teller. That is definitely not what Luke means when he says she was a prophetess. That is not what the Bible means when it talks about prophets and prophetesses. That's not what they did. When the Bible talks about these people, most of them, by and far, the majority of them, never received what we just saw with Simeon, personal, direct revelation from God. Most of them, by far the majority, there were thousands of prophets, by far the majority never received any direct revelation, never wrote anything in Scripture, never were given any details about the future. 
The majority of them simply were interested in what the Scripture said and repeating that to other people. That's what prophets and prophetesses did. They simply took the truth of God and were interested in sharing those truths with other people, announcing those truths, giving those truths to other people. That's what prophets did. So keep that in mind. Most prophets are not concerned with foretelling in terms of the future and predicting things. Most of them are simply interested in foretelling, taking what truths have already been revealed and repeating to the people. And obviously, she had some role or had become known, maybe informally, as someone who was very interested in teaching and giving people the truths, the truths of Scripture. It says there that she began to give thanks and speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, she liked to tell people about these things. And there were people who, who listened to her talk about these things, about particularly the redemption of Jerusalem. She was just like Simeon. She was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It says that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And she came up at that very hour and began to give thanks to God. This lady was always at the temple. I think uh, Luke is speaking uh, hyperbolically. He's just exaggerating. We say this about people who spend a lot of time at the church. They're always at the church. We don't mean they actually live there and sleep there and they're bums. What we mean is that they're just always there, and that's this lady. She, she was always there. She was always doing something, working, teaching, helping people, speaking of the grace of God. And she was up there all the time. Well, as soon as she discovered Jesus... She began speaking again. She began prophesying again, not foretelling, not predicting future, not giving some sort of tranced oracle about the future. No, she was simply speaking the truths of Scripture. She repeated the biblical information. In fact, that phrase, redemption of Jerusalem, is straight from the Old Testament. She began to articulate these things and speak of these things being fulfilled in Christ. Now, I grant that it's possible that she received some sort of revelation, just like Simeon, but that's not recorded for us. What is simply recorded for us is this woman lived off the truth of Scripture. She simply received the Bible and the truth of the Bible, believed it, saw the Christ, and began worshiping Christ. She begins to use the language of the Bible to praise God and to worship God. She took these truths to her heart. And she began to do what? She began to profess them. She began to show that the Bible and God himself really professes that this baby boy is indeed the Christ. Well, this brings us finally, very briefly, to the question of application. Will you profess Jesus as the Christ? That's number three. Will you profess Jesus as the Christ? That's what Luke is after. Luke wants us to see what the Holy Spirit said, Simeon, what the Bible said, what God said through Anna. The Scripture itself is a product of the Holy Spirit. And what we ought to do, like Simeon and like Anna, is that we we study it and we believe it and we build our lives around this profession. We don't simply acknowledge it in our heads and, and sort of say, oh yeah, I even went to church on Christmas Day. 
No, we begin to build our lives around the truth of who He is. We make our decisions based on Christ and the gospel message. That's what's unique about these two people. They lived in the hope and the truth of God's Word, Christ revealed. We could go deep, and we, again, we would do this if we were studying Luke. We could go deep and looking especially at the words of, of Simeon. And just broadly speaking, Simeon and Anna are prime examples, the early examples of people who recognized Jesus as who He was, the Christ, the hope, the Messiah of Israel. So we ought also to profess Christ, to live, to structure our lives around the truth of Scripture, particularly as it garners faith in Jesus Christ. The end game of the Word of God is to reveal to us the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation. If we're focused on the book, the, the Word of God, we will understand the Word of God, Jesus Christ. We'll dedicate our lives to Him. We'll see all of our lives, not just history, not just the Bible, but all of our lives as something that should revolve around the worship and adoration of Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of life I pray that I can lead and that I pray that you would lead. This time of year, Christmas time, reminds us of these beautiful people who dedicated their lives to the one who made it possible for us to come to God, to have our sins forgiven, to walk with Him and be with Him, and to love and worship Him our whole lives. Let's devote our lives to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would bless us. Bless us as we seek to do this. Bless us as we seek to follow Christ and build our lives on the One who makes it all possible. I pray for those who may be here who don't know You. We pray that You'd bless them with salvation. Bless them with the truth of the gospel. Make it clear to them that they need Christ, that they are sinners lost and dead in sin. Awaken their hearts to the truth of their condition without Christ. Grant them that faith and desire to follow Jesus, repenting of sin. And give them assurance of salvation that they have trusted in Christ and believed in Him. Bless us all now as we attempt to continue to grow in our faith in Christ, even in a time of family and Christmas. Help us to love and worship Jesus every moment of every day. We ask this in His name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me, I'll give you a benediction, and we'll be dismissed for the day. It's inspired by one of the texts I read last night, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, a very familiar messianic text. Now may we go rejoicing, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. Amen.